Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Reverend Steve Andrews. Today we read from Judges, chapter 10. After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty-three years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel twenty-two years. And he had thirty sons, who rode on thirty donkeys, and they had thirty cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For eighteen years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, and against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And Yahweh said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Malonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me, and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go, and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress." And the people of Israel said to Yahweh, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is the word of the Lord. So today in our text, we're actually going to see two different minor judges as they end up getting named in the book. I would encourage you maybe to ask your children, How many judges are there? This could be a good review point, right? How many judges have you already seen? Name them um, and see if you can recall what stories had gone with each of those different judges. Now, if you're looking at a Lutheran study Bible, it suggests that we have one, two, three, four, five, six major judges in the book. We've already had four of those with Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, and Gideon. We have Jephthah, tomorrow in chapter 11, and we have Samson at the end of the book. Now, then we also have some minor judges. You have one, two, three, four, five, six minor judges. We've only had one of them until today, and that was Shamgar. We get Tola and Jair, 
And then we will later get Ibzan, Elan, and Abdon in the chapters to come in a couple of days. So that gives us in total, right, 5, 10, 12 judges in the book of Judges. We don't count Abimelech. Abimelech tried to set himself up as king, although in fairness, maybe his father, Gideon, had already done such a thing, and Abimelech was simply trying to follow in his dad's footsteps there. But there's no, there's no notation that any kind of salvation, any saving, any deliverance was happening under Abimelech, as it is the norm for the judges. So we've had then really Tola and Jair here at the start of chapter 10 are going to be the sixth and the seventh judges over Israel. However, even with each of these these judges, we have not seen the fullness of that cycle repeating. So we begin cycle number six with this chapter at verse six, where the people sin against God, then they are oppressed, and then he sends a savior, a deliverer, a judge, and then they have peace for a time, right? This is that sixth cycle before they fall into sin again. We haven't had one in a while. You'd have to go back to, I believe it was chapter six, where we read about the cycle that gave us Gideon to be the judge over Israel. So as we look at Tola, he gets just those two verses. He's going to live in the city of Shamir. Now, you've not heard of Shamir, most likely, but you have heard of the city, I would guess. Shamir, later on, is going to be renamed by one of Israel's kings. When King Omri decides to live in this city and make it his capital, it becomes known as Samaria. So, New Testament connection there, right? If you're, if you're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritans are people who are from Samaria. They're the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. Just as the Jews would become viewed as the people, essentially, of the southern kingdom, although that's, that's not straightforward as much. They are the Judaites, uh, and then the Jew, the Jew word does come in over time. But I believe could be a reference also to people from the northern kingdom, at various points at least. When you get to the New Testament, though, Jews and Samaritans do seem to hate each other. They do seem to be distinguished as different groups. And that's the background of that. As you then get into the books of the kings, you see how Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, are constantly almost at war with one another. And that's why when you get to Jesus' day, there's this hatred between the two peoples because of that long-standing tension and fight between them. At least that's a primary reason. There's other things going into it as well. So anyway, Shamir is Samaria in the hill country of Ephraim, just a little west of Shechem, which served as the setting uh, even just yesterday in the chapter. His time as judge lasts for 23 years, roughly 1131 to 1109 BC, and then he dies and is buried in Samaria, Shamir. And then verse 3, we get the next minor judge, who would then, I guess, be the seventh of our judges in the book, and he's going to judge for 22 years, roughly 1109 to 1088 BC. We learn something similar to Gideon, where Gideon had 70 sons, so Jair has 30 sons. It's not specifically said like it was with Gideon. Gideon had many wives. That's not said of Jair. However, 
I mean, just do the math on how long a pregnancy takes. Um, this would be very difficult, very difficult for one woman to do. I won't say impossible because the Lord can bless and the Lord can care and the Lord can provide. So most likely a situation of polygyny, that is a one man with multiple wives, but it's not specifically stated for us. Each son has a donkey, each son has a city, and those cities together are known as the tent villages of Jair, or as you see it in your English Bible, Havoth Jair. They, he reigns from the land of Gilead, which is to the east of the Jordan River. That's all we see about these minor judges. So they serve as military hero leaders for the people of God for that time. But then as we get to this verse 6, we see the cycle begin again. Cycle number 6 in the book, the people do what is evil in the eyes of Yahweh. They serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth, again, is the plural for Asherah, which is a female goddess, right? And instead, and kind of as a couplet with Baal, the those ancient religions often had male-female deity pairs in them because they were fertility cults, and how do you produce new life? Well, you know the drill. You got to have male and female for that. But these are plurals, right? Uh, Baal is the Hebrew word for Lord, or one of the Hebrew words for Lord. Adon is another where we get Adonai. Some of you might be familiar with that as one of the titles that we give to God sometimes. So they're worshiping the various Baals, the various lords, these false gods of the foreign nations around them. Syria is up to the north, maybe the northeast a little bit. Sidon is to the northwest. Moab is to the southeast. Ammon is to the east. Philistines are to the southwest. They're worshiping the gods of the peoples all around them rather than worshiping Yahweh, the God who has made them into a nation, the God who has defended them, delivered them, saved them before they have rejected. Which is going to be his own argument here shortly. So God is kindled in his anger. You think of kindling like a fire burning. His anger is burning against Israel. And he sells them into oppression once again. He gives them over to the desires of their heart. This is Romans 1 kind of language in that way when you think about it. This is seen in the New Testament as well, in other words. That after a while, the Lord eventually gives the sinner over to their wicked desires. They want false gods? Well, let's see if their false gods can defend them. Let's see if their false gods can protect them and lead them as Yahweh would and has. And instead they fight against oppression and they're crushed, verse 8, we see. So two specific enemies here in, in this section, the Philistines and the Ammonites. The Philistines, again, to the southwest. You're most familiar with them probably because of the giant Goliath, who was a Philistine. They are, the Philistines show up in scripture as early as the book of Genesis. They're already there as a, I don't know that I would call them necessarily a great military power, but they have an army officer, like a chief over their, their army named Phicol, who serves Abimelech. See the name similarity here? The, the king of Gerar, which is of the Philistines. And he interacts with Abraham in Genesis chapter 20. So we see some of that, and they are going to become a, a real thorn in Israel's side, a real pain to the Israelites throughout the time of Israel's 
well, early years here in the promised land, but even into the time of the kings, it's going to be King David who's going to be the most successful in battle against the Philistines. So they're to the southwest. They live on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And then you have the Ammonites. The Ammonites, very specifically, are actually descended from Abraham's family, Abraham's nephew Lot. His two daughters took advantage of him, got him drunk, and essentially raped him. Um, He's not innocent in that. This is Genesis 19. His sin there is drunkenness, certainly, and he's got no excuse then for what happens after. He's not caring for his family at that point. But his daughters with the wicked plot, they both end up conceiving by means of dad. And one of those sons goes on to be Moab, from the father is the meaning of that name, and he is going to be the Moabite people in the future, and we've seen them already, we've even had them mentioned here in this chapter. And then the other son, born of the other daughter, is named Ben-Ami, son of my father, and gives us the Ammonites to this day. So, When God's people try to take matters into their own hand, it leads to disaster, and that disaster, that sinful consequence, continues for generations. So the Ammonites and the Philistines oppressed them for 18 years. That's 1088 to 1071 B.C., roughly, again. And they fight against Judah, against Benjamin, against Ephraim. They distress the nation. So the people finally cry out. Again, that cycle, sin oppression, repentance that leads to the deliverer coming, and then period of peace before they return to sin again. They cry out to God, admitting they have sinned, they have forsaken him to serve the Baals, and Yahweh's response is to list off all the ways he has saved them before, all that he has done for them, and yet they've rejected him again and again and again. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you. Now, we know that those are false gods, that those gods could not possibly save them because they don't even exist to help them. Whereas Yahweh is the only God, and he helps his people. They rightly here push on, right? They they respond to God saying that by, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So, thy will be done, the prayer we pray that Jesus taught us to pray, kind of fitting in that, right? Um, Do whatever is good to you. And then they also say their request. So, God, it's in your hands, do your will, but here's what we're asking, save us. They admit that they deserve nothing but they're going to make their petition known to God anyway. That's actually a great place to consider for prayer for us today, for our families. We deserve nothing from God. In fact, the only thing we actually deserve is to die because of our sin. That deserve word gets tossed around so much in our culture today. Um, I deserve this. You know, they deserve to be treated better. All those sorts of phrases. We deserve death, and that's it. Because we rebelled against the God who created us and gave us life. But we can pray like they did. Father, thy will be done. And then we can ask him for what we we need. 
and trust. We can trust that he hears our prayer, that he answers us, and he gives us what we need. Namely, he rescues us from what we deserve. He rescues us from sin, death, and the devil. And he does so in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Now, verse 16, we see they repent. They put away the foreign gods from among them. And that does not necessarily mean they got rid of them. But it's like, even that phrase, if we were to use that phrase, you put away your dishes, you know, you've put them in a cabinet, you've stored them away, right? So they're not going to worship these false gods, but they didn't necessarily get rid of them. The phrase can have that connotation to it, though, so I don't want to say for sure that they didn't. Um, To put away, I think he's even a a phrase maybe that's used of, of divorce at one or two points in the Old Testament, that he put away his wife, he, got, he sent her off. He got rid of her. Um, but the more common usage, not that strong, not that potent. So this is their repentance. And that could be a good family conversation point as well. How do we repent of our sins? What does it look like to repent? That word repent means to turn. So you turn away from your sin and you turn to the Lord. That happens in prayer as we confess our sins. We also, we, though we, we turn away. So if I'm repenting of theft, I don't keep stealing. I turn to the Lord. Now, that's not to say I won't be tempted to steal again. It's not to say I'll never steal again. But it is to say that in the moment of repentance, I'm saying, Lord, I know that what I did was wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I won't steal again. I have no intention to steal again. That's that moment of repentance. So, God grows impatient over their misery because they have repented. They have turned to him. They're putting their trust in him here. He sees their plight, and he's going to deliver them from this this enemy. So the Ammonites gather for battle at Gilead. The Israelites gather for battle at Mizpah. That's a little harder to recognize as a city name because they had more than one Mizpah. Um, But most likely it's over in Gilead as well on the opposite side of the Jordan. And so they... They then ask each other, the people of Israel, the people in Gilead, right, who are being attacked by the Ammonites, who will fight for us? Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? They want to know who their judge will be, who will deliver them. And that's where we start tomorrow.